Kai Guy coming in not live from New Hampshire. And today, well, today I have a really interesting interview with probably one of the top interviewers in New Hampshire. Today I'm going to be interviewing Mr. Adam Sexton from the news channel WMUR in New Hampshire. It's going to be a really exciting interview. I'm not sure when the last time he was the one being interviewed was because he's one of the top reporters in New Hampshire, especially for politics. And, well, I'm really excited to interview him. Actually, before we jump right in, I have one quick note. If you hear some background noise during today's episode, it's because I got Adam during the time when he was at the news station working. I was really lucky to have him. He's really busy, so if you hear some background noise, just know it's because he's in the news studio. Um, now, let's jump right in. Hello, Mr. Sexton. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hey, Kai. I'm Adam Sexton. I am the political director at WMUR-TV, a station in Manchester, New Hampshire. All right. Thank you. So how did you become a reporter? What was your inspiration or how did you get to this point? You know, I think when I was around your age, I was involved in a class project that had us put together a newscast. And I became very interested in the idea of broadcasting. And from there, got very interested in sports broadcasting and went to Syracuse University in upstate New York with the intent of probably becoming a sports broadcaster, but then ran into a lot of other guys who were doing exactly the same thing. And the opportunities presented themselves much more earlier in news. And after an internship at a TV station in rural Oregon, where I grew up, I was hooked. And the rest is history. Bounced around to a couple different jobs and then came here in 2007 and have been here ever since. Nice. What is it like to be the biggest political reporter in the state? You know, um, I appreciate you saying that, but uh, I think, you know, what's, what's great about New Hampshire is that there's all sorts of different kinds of political reporters and commentators and all sorts of different things. I think um, the one thing that WMUR has is a very big audience, uh, and that's probably the biggest uh, thing about uh what I do is that it, I have a responsibility to a lot of people in the state who tune in. I think the last I was told around here that uh, in any given week, 97% uh, of the entire population of New Hampshire interacts with some sort of content from WMUR, whether that's a newscast or a wow. uh, website. I know, right? It's that's pretty, pretty off the charts. Uh, you don't really see that in a lot of other places. It's a very unique TV station, very unique media outlet, and it's a lot of fun to work here, but... Um, in terms of, you know, what it's like, I would say uh, the number one thing I feel is a real sense of responsibility to the viewers of New Hampshire because it's such a relied upon source in the state to make sure that I get it right and I'm fair and I'm presenting the best possible information to the people who are consuming it. So what was the first topic that you ever reported on? Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's see. So if I can go back and let's see when I was an intern on um, the first station I worked at the first story that I sort of put together uh, for just practice was about a, an illegal dumping site uh, in a wildlife refuge. Somebody had taken a, a bridge that was deconstructed and then just dumped a bunch of it in a, in a wildlife refuge in this town in Oregon. And uh, the reporter who was helping to teach me, my mentor, uh, allowed me to do a story alongside him. And that's really what helped me get excited about reporting uh, altogether, not just, um, you know, school was fun and learning about that, but that internship and in particular that experience of being brought in and 
shown the ropes and how to do a story. So yeah, it was about, it was an environmental story where I was in Oregon. You see a lot more environmental issues pop up uh, because there's uh, more public lands and there's more of a debate over uh, how people can access and use those public lands. So that's a big part of covering the news out there. Right. So now I'm going to jump into a little more of the politics side of things. So this year specifically, what was your favorite race to watch? It's a good question. Um, I don't know. You know, I try not to have favorites or not so much favorites in, uh, in what I do. It's more, um, I, I'm super interested in all of it. Uh, and I try to maintain that enthusiasm because I think if you do start, uh, thinking of certain races as like, oh, I really wish I want, I want to cover this one. Then suddenly the other ones can kind of fade a little bit. Like you have to, in New Hampshire, uh, for instance, you know, the second congressional district, uh, that's, that's one that um, Congresswoman Custer has won that race now for six cycles in a row. Uh, so 12 years, essentially, uh, of, of elections. And it's getting less competitive, I guess, is one way to say it. But you do have to bring the same enthusiasm and energy to that story as you do to the race that your dad was in, for instance, you know, which was hugely competitive, both the primary and the general election. I, I try to make sure that I don't play favorites in any regard. And so even that means even when I'm thinking about these races, I try to be just as excited about the ones that may not be as competitive as the ones that are, you know, really driving. Again, and that circles back, if I can, to that aspect of being responsible to the viewers, because there are certain people who, you know, who are out there maybe living in Westmoreland or, you know, uh, Woodsville, uh, who may not care that much about the Senate race, and they care a lot about the second congressional district race. And so I got to make sure I do both. Right. So is there anything that you really dislike about your job at all? Um, there can be a long hour sometimes, and that's just about anything these days. I've got to say I'm very lucky to do something that I love and I'm super interested in and have a lot of control over sort of deciding what story to do in a given day. So if, uh, if I'm not liking something, it's usually my own fault. I think I'll tell you the one thing that is not fun is, uh, you know, uh, in some ways, reporting or doing a story on a daily basis can be a little bit like baseball, right? Where you're getting up to bat right. and some days you might hit a home run and some days you might have a pitch that you thought you could hit for a home run and you end up striking out. And that just means that the story doesn't turn out as well as you wanted it to. Maybe you mess up your live shot or um, an interview doesn't go well. So that, that's the stuff that's less fun, but otherwise right. it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. So speaking of interviews, um, I watched your interview with Majority Leader Osborne, and I was wondering, is it often that when you ask questions, people just are silent? You know, that was a very uh, interesting thing that happened. Uh, and I think it boiled down to a bit of a miscommunication uh, because what happened was uh, we have a, uh, at our station, uh, you know, this was six months ago, I think that was in June. Um, we had a, a very strict COVID policy of who could come in the building and who couldn't, uh, which, um, you know, is in, in essence to protect the idea that, you know, if we have to have a newscast go on, right? It's not like you can say, oh, snow day or oh, it's a sick day, too many people are out. We've got to put something on the air. So they really have to protect the studio in terms of, you know, a bunch of people not being out sick. So part of what happened was, uh, I got pushed out into the community to do my interviews uh, and do it on camera. And I don't think that Majority Leader Osborne had ever done an interview like that uh, seated. And I told him it was live to tape. Um, and that means it's a, that's another sort of 
I guess it's an insider term a little bit, meaning that we're going to record this as is. And I think he believed what uh, what was happening was he could think about the answer and and then state an answer, and we would edit it. So it was it was more of a miscommunication. Um, Right. On, my, on my part, maybe on my fault for not explaining that well enough to him. But it, you know, it's interesting as it turned out, a lot of people had very uh, you know interesting reactions to that, right? Because right. Uh, you know he, he was thinking, but uh, he was you know kind of staring right at me while thinking, and he certainly thought more during some answers than others. So um, people had a very strong reaction to that, and I think it was interesting. And that was as an interviewer. I was thinking to myself, like, gosh, I wonder what he's doing here. <laughs> and, uh, but I just decided to roll with it. And that was that. So why did you choose to report in New Hampshire rather than another state? Was it just kind of you ended up being in New Hampshire or that you liked the New Hampshire politics more than other states? A little bit of both. I, um, when I graduated from Syracuse, I went back to work where I grew up in Oregon and, you know, covered fun environmental stories and a lot of forest fires. That's another thing we've got out there that's uh, really remarkable to be close to something like that as it's happening. Um, <clears throat> and then I worked in Fresno, California for two years. Uh, that was uh, another experience. That's a city of about 400 or so thousand people in the Central Valley of California, very agricultural, but uh, also urban as well. So um, a lot of um, difficult situations out there, very high crime areas, a lot of gang violence. Um, we would in that place, drive around. You could. I've had a worked a shift where he came in at two thirty and would work until midnight, and we would just go kind of drive around and wait for something bad to happen. And it would, unfortunately, that's how horrifying that place was. After that, I covered the city council in Fresno for a little bit, and then through that, ended up seeing a job opening in New Hampshire. Took this job, and then kind of fell in love with covering politics and worked my way into a position where um, I was able to do that more and more. And so it was a real eye-opener coming from Fresno, where the city council, they're all seated up on this high uh, dais that's above the people, and everybody's kind of looking up at them, and there's maybe five minutes of public comment before they go through and make all sorts of decisions, millions and millions of dollars every week in terms of appropriations and things like that. And then coming to New Hampshire, uh, where they have, you know, town meeting, everybody shows up and debates for seven hours over whether or not to, you know, buy a new fire truck, you know, to replace a fire truck that's been around since the 70s. <laughs> it was a, a um, eye-opening experience and really one that I was, you know, fell in love with from the start. And so that's why I, uh, you know, came here for the job and then stayed because I really liked it. So speaking of different candidates, who would you label as the craziest candidate you ever interviewed? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, did you ever encounter Vermin Supreme yet? The, uh, he's the guy who wears the boot on his head and kind of speaks into a bullhorn. Um, but he's a performance artist, too. And so that's the thing is it's not uh, for him. It's not, you know, he, you know his policies are uh, mandatory toothbrushing and a pony for everyone. And so he uh, but he's again, like I mentioned, he's uh, he engages in satire. And so he likes to sort of lampoon what people are doing. Um, I don't think, you know, I'm trying to think of any candidate we've dealt with that is not just not all there. Um, can't really think of anybody, but he's one where it's just kind of like, you don't really know what that guy's going to do next. Uh, it might be an interesting interview for your program. Uh, but again, that's the thing is with him, uh, you, you can ask one question and get a totally different answer. So what about the like smallest kind of person you interviewed who then became like a big name in politics, but started as just... Someone. Started out low on the totem pole. 
Um, in retrospect, it's probably somebody like Pete Buttigieg, right, who came here as the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and then left that whole process, becoming the Secretary of Transportation to the United States. He, you know, kind of uh, proved what is uh, so many people like to say about the New Hampshire primary and uh, and the process here, which is that you can get a fair hearing and look, anything can happen. He didn't win his race, but he became a a national figure, you know, a lot of people know him now. Uh, and that was based on his own campaign and his own ability to get his message out and just be himself. And so I think that was, I remember when he came to do what's called conversation with the candidate, which is a uh, televised town hall that we do. He came in um, early March of 2019. And uh, I had that day, you know, there was a chance that I might not make it to work, but I thought, oh, I'll give this, you know, I, I wanted to do this one. Uh, just in case, do a conversation with the candidate. And I remember thinking as he was doing this, I'm like, man, this guy is better than just sounding like the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He has some real abilities. And sure enough, he just took off like a rocket after that. But so I think that's, he's probably the, the one who went from, again, that's, you know, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, that might as well, that, you know, mayor of Manchester, mayor of Nashua, like that would be the equivalent of them yeah. just showing up and then suddenly becoming, you know, a, a trusted advisor and cabinet member of the president. Right. So jumping into some sort of predictions, do you have any predictions for the next election? I think in the presidential, let's like, you know, let's make a prediction on uh, that I think will be safe for the New Hampshire primary. I think the New Hampshire primary will still be first no matter what. Now, how people approach that, whether on the Democratic side, it's still the same kind of primary that it always was. We don't know yet. But um, I'm going to predict, and this is kind of probably a little safe, but that, that we will still hold the first in the nation primary for Democrats and Republicans in 2024. Other than that, I'm interested to see, uh, again, who shows up to run, uh, not just for president, but for all sorts of different offices. We don't have a Senate race this next time around. It's going to be a, a lull, but we'll have the presidential people uh, filling that in. So um, it'll also be interesting to see. Uh, what happens with Governor Chris Sununu, what he decides to do, uh, whether that's run for another term, uh, you know, end up in a cabinet of Republican administration. A lot of people are wondering if he's going to run for president as well. The one thing he's not doing that everybody needs to do if they're going to run for president is raise a heck of a lot of money. Right. And so I guess if that had to be a prediction, uh, the data tells us right now that he is not doing the things that are necessary the thing that is necessary to run for president, which is to have a boatload of cash on hand to be able to finance your campaign. He's just not doing that. So maybe it's a safer prediction at the moment to say that he won't run. But if we know uh, anything about Governor Chris Sununu, it's that he likes to kind of follow his instincts. And sometimes that can mean just making a decision like that. We'll see. Do you think that there will be any like smaller candidates who come in? Like we know that Biden and Trump or we think Biden and Trump are going to be running. Do you think there will be smaller candidates that come in and even come close to them in the primary? That's a good question. I think the, especially, especially with the Democrats, right, that I think that there will be a, a progressive candidate who challenges Biden. Who that is, we don't know. Maybe Marianne Williamson, who ran in 2020. Um, she may have dropped out before uh, the primary itself, but um, she was a, uh, she's a spiritual author. Uh, and friend of Oprah Winfrey, uh, activist uh, as well, who has gained a big following as an author and then has gotten involved in politics. She has been someone who might challenge President Biden, even if he decides to run again. That's the one thing is for, for the Democrats right now that um, 
even though President Biden has taken this new approach on the primary, which might not sit well with a lot of granite staters, uh, he's popular enough within his own party right now. And they did well enough in the midterm elections that it's probably not going to um, be an issue for him. If he says, I'm running, he's going to have most of the party lineup right behind him. So we will see some people maybe run against him, but they're not the kind of people who will probably be able to make much headway. Now, on the Republican side, I think you're going to see eventually a lot of people get in against former President Trump. Uh, how they do and how that situation shakes out, that is the big um million dollar question, right? Because uh, a big field of Republicans took on President Trump in 2015 and 16, and he decimated them. You know, that was uh, arguably his greatest uh, political ability is his campaign ability. And his um, not just that, his ability to really take apart other candidates uh, through criticism and debates and, you know, nicknames and all of these things. So it'll be fascinating to see once that field materializes, if Trump has that same kind of ability that he did in 2015 and 16. Right. Next jobs. Do you think you'll ever work at some place like Fox News or CNN? You know, um, I don't think I want to do any other media job other than this. Uh, you know, what's interesting is the, you know, people who come into the state who are reporters uh, in Washington, they always tell me, oh, man, you've got the best job in the world because everybody comes to us and we get a little bit of a break, whereas they're flying all over the country. Right. And some of those media folks, it's, you know, um, one of the, you know, I've, I have two kids and another on the way and the, um, sometimes the job is demanding and I don't get to see them as much as I want to, but that's, uh, if you work uh, for Fox and you cover campaigns, you're definitely on the road way more and seeing your family way less than you would want to. So I think I, I love the job that I have. Uh, it's a, it's a lot of work. Uh, I'm definitely in it for the, this primary cycle and then we'll see if they, they want me back after that. It's a mutual decision, but I'm definitely in this, love this job. I love it for the long haul. Speaking of your kids, do they usually watch you on TV? Uh, yes and no. They, so Sam is 10 and Scarlett is eight and uh, they like to watch the debates and all that. And, uh, they like actually to come to campaign events, uh, Sam more than Scarlett. He likes to take pictures uh of candidates and you know meet them he's started to do like you a little interview uh stuff here and there uh nothing as big as a podcast yet but mm -hmm. um but they uh yeah they um sometimes watch their dad on tv but they they're uh, they love to be my biggest critics <laughs> so now speaking of all of the uh news sources um what do you think about the ads that are run from like a democrat's campaign again, like almost pushing up the most extreme Republican. Oh, this thing that happened that we saw in this cycle, right? Yeah, that was a relatively new phenomenon where we saw uh, the opposite party trying to boost candidates uh, in a primary that they thought they could defeat more easily. Um, and strategically, it ended up working for them in most cases, I think. There was a little bit of a touch and go period where it looked like, man, this could backfire on them and that they would end up helping to elect people that they really, really disagreed with. But in the end, I think they won just about all of those races. It's um, it's different, you know, right? I mean, it's there's nothing that says it's against the rules. They get the First Amendment and that protects a lot of that speech and a Supreme Court decision that protects a lot of the political speech in terms of uh, ads. Um, I think we've only just seen the beginning of the innovation on this front. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see too if, um, I think people of your generation are far more media literate. Uh, what I mean by that is savvy, smart about what they see 
than we see with older generations uh, right. who are more, more used to consuming media uh, passively, which is to say they grew up with uh, television with just three channels and they don't, um, in general, they are not as um, skeptical or uh, thinking critically about what they're seeing all the time. Whereas I think uh, people your age and older who've grown up in the digital digital generation are a little bit more like, okay, well, who's doing this? Why are they doing this? What is it for? Um, so I think the ability to influence the outcome uh, with those kind of ads maybe diminishes with time, but we'll see. And it could become even more innovative. And that's, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the biggest tasks uh, for your generation in the years ahead will be to figure out what is fair um, in campaigning and campaign advertising and coverage when we can have these uh, ideas of something like a deep fake, right? Where the video is completely AI and computer generated. Um, how do you proceed in a world like that, right? What is fair? What is, what is right? Um, when you can have uh, a candidate or a, uh, a group affiliated or not affiliated with a candidate sort of flooding the airwaves or anywhere else, the internet with videos that are essentially totally false. Um, it's going to be a very interesting kind of a wild west time in terms of information and you guys get to figure it out. <laughs> so how do you think people my age should view kinds of things like this? Like the fact that how important money is because i i learned about that when my dad was running that money is so important and it can be used to do these things like running the extremely misleading ads and the question being uh how should people my age think about oh. our like well I, I would i wouldn't want to tell you how to think about it other than to say that um the fact that you're thinking about it is great uh, that you should uh, engage and, you know, other kids your age who are interested in this stuff and maybe not even interested to start that conversation because you get to be the decision makers. Now, me, I, I, I kind of just want to be able to put the facts out there. Um, but uh, and that, that will be impacted, I think, in some way by that. Um, I, I think, you know, part of what I try to do is, you know, obviously there's the, um, the money side of things uh, with advertising. Um, we try to make sure in the news department that everybody's getting a fair shake in the coverage. And that way, if you want to be someone who, you know, tunes the ads out, right, hits that mute button when they come on, at least when you're watching us, you're going to get a fair and accurate representation of the candidate that won't be impacted by all these other things we're seeing happening in digital media and sort of like that, you know, the, the unfair things you can see, the manipulation that you can see with advertising and attack ads. Right. So with a little bit of just ending piece of advice for me, again, and people my age, what would you like advise that we turn off the ads or like mute it when the ads come on? Or do you think that sometimes the ads are good? I think, I think you have to make your, your own decision on how much you can take. Right. And right. I know for me, there are some times where it's just like, oh, I mean, come on, I'm like, ah, oh, click this, I can't, you know, even though it's, you know, in some ways paying the bills around here, right? The, um, I think that it's important not to turn away from it too much because especially as someone like you who is asking questions and, um, you know, wanting to be uh, an inquiring mind about it, you would have to be aware of what's happening in that universe. But at the same time, don't feel like that is the sole determinant of what's going on because, there are good ads, there are effective ads, there are bad ads, there are ineffective ads. You know, um, so it, it isn't everything. It's a component and an important one, but um, 
as you can see, uh, circling back to someone like Pete Buttigieg, right? He right. didn't have much, much money for any advertising whatsoever. And it was really just his innate ability and sort of the viral moments that kept growing and growing from what he was doing that helped put him and his message out there. So it's possible to, to get around those things in certain aspects. But I think um, for your generation in particular, I think, as I mentioned before, it's going to be really important to think about how you want the, you know, um, what we call the digital commons, right? Of where we, where we gather uh, together online, right? And I think your generation is going to do, as that world gets less volatile, uh, as you grow up, you guys are going to be making a lot of important decisions about how people interact and exist um, in that medium. And so the more that you think about it and the more that you talk about it, um, in a fair and honest and open way, I think that's the best part to do because um, you'll be the decision maker someday. And and I think the more that you talk about it and the more you discuss, that's going to be the, the way to get to the best decision. So, and my final question is, as a, um, as a career, would you advise journalism to? You know, so this is one thing that I... Um, tell and you're already in journalism right you figured it out i tell young people i you know i say that uh you know when i was your age <laughs> that old phrase that i needed the opportunity for me to do what you're doing was almost non-existent i needed multiple adults to help me acquire cameras um equipment editing uh all of this i needed like stuff uh you know like and buildings and all of you know like it, it just a, the, the barrier to entry for that was so high that it was really you had to be part of a class in a school or really a club or something like that. Whereas now, if you have access to this, this is your own portable television studio right in your hand right. uh, and your laptop and all that. And so you can be a reporter right now. And whether that's something you want to keep doing or not, I think um, in the future is going to be in some ways about how um, we continue to see the. Um, diminishing importance uh, of the big sort of like, I have this message and here's what Adam Sexton had to say today about the news and more and more about uh, everyone having their own voice and making sure their own opinion is out there, but finding a way that we can all listen to each other without it being just a cacophony of all these voices, right? Um, so I, I'm, I love the fact that you figured out already that you can be a reporter and really, I, you know, as long as you're, you know, being fair and honest, there's really nothing that separates you from me. Uh, you you have you can do the job that I can do, uh, as long as you're you know like always telling the truth and being fair. That you could we could take Kaiman Sharmani and put him in this seat, you know, on Monday, right. and he could do a story for WMUR, right? And I think that's the beauty of the way that you guys are growing up. And the, what's awesome about what you're doing is that um, you're doing it now. And so, um, if that's what you want to keep doing, Amen. But if you have other interests. This is a skill and uh, something that you can always come back to. You can always report. You can always interview. And that's something that is transferable to all sorts of different careers. So what I would say is, if this is your passion, follow it. But it allows you to do a lot of other different things. And if you have other interests, definitely don't set those aside. The one thing that this job can do is it's all-consuming. Once you do step in to this chair, you know you don't have a lot of time for other stuff. So if you like other stuff, go find it and explore it uh, before you set in and be, because reporting is like, like I said, it, it's the idea that, you know, and maybe you, you guys will be faster at this being younger, but like 
having to produce 80 or 90 seconds worth uh, of a story at the end of the day. Like my, my mind is already on a clock right now, you know, to make sure I'm going to get that four and five and six o'clock news stuff done. Um, that's not something that has to happen for a lot of other jobs. Other jobs, you have a project that you're working on over maybe days or weeks. The idea that you have to produce something, content at the end of the day, or, you know, face the wrath of, you know, luckily there aren't any bosses around here today, but, um, you know, that's, that's a heavy lift on a daily basis. So that would be my only warning if you wanted to get into news or something else, like be your own boss. <laughs> well, thank you. This was really fun. I got to interview the person who's usually doing the interviewing. <laughs> you did a great job. You know, that was a great, thank you. great questions. Thank you again, Mr. Sexton, for coming on the show with me. I know you're really busy, so I won't take up any more of your time. I think that you gave me and my listeners some great insights and advice into the world of news and future jobs, and I feel like I learned a ton. So thank you once again, and that's about all I have to say. But one final note. I'm sorry that I haven't posted in a while. I'll make sure that I do it more regularly, and that's about all for today. So I'll see you guys next time on The Kai Guy Show!